Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are joined by Ustad Dr. Muhammad Ghilan, who has graduated with a Bachelor's of Science with a major in microbiology from the University of Victoria. So many people don't know he's actually from the Lower Mainland, alhamdulillah, so we can claim him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he has also, he has also completed a, a PhD in neuro, neuroscience um, as well. And just recently, mashallah, has completed his medical degree from the University of Queensland. Um, and uh, on the side, he has also been um, studying sacred knowledge, alhamdulillah, and uh, has, had a, has had a tremendous influence on um, many people within our community, including myself. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Ghilan. So the topic I want to touch upon today is the topic of anti-vaxxers or the topic of vaccines in general. Um, and what's interesting about you that I recently found out is that your final project in your public health for your uh, medical degree was on vaccinations and the socio-political phenomenon devoid of scientific scientific integrity we now call anti-vaxxers. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're just quoting what I said in my, in my antagonistic post there. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, why, why, why recreate the wheel if somebody has said it better, right? So um, mm. the first thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ghilan, is what are your general thoughts on, you know, what's going on with, you know, this pandemic um, in terms of, you know, vaccines, the, consp the conspiracy theories? Um, I have some general discussions, some questions I'd like to ask after, but, you know, what's going on in your mind right now as somebody who um, is a doctor, who has studied neuroscience, who has studied vaccinations, what is going on with our society right now? Um, it's, it's a number of things I think are happening with, with humanity in general when it comes to this stuff. Uh, first of all, this pandemic and any major uh, event that happens, uh, regardless whether people say it's, it's a natural event or it's human made or everything is a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells in Surah Al-Baqarah, in Allah la yastahi ayadriba mathalan ma ba'udatan fama fawqaha. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not shy to strike an example using a mosquito or anything greater than that. Um, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that example to tell us, don't think anything is too insignificant. And I think it's quite impressive that uh, you know Allah through a virus that you need an electron microscope to really view he can literally bring this entire world into on its knees mm -hmm. and turn everything upside down. Um, so that's that one thing. The other thing is if you, um, the, the lifespan of human beings does not allow us through our own experience to have a historical memory that is sufficient to appreciate what's happening. So you look at this pandemic, for example, these pandemics that uh, engulf a large portion of the globe happen around every hundred years or so. The last one we had was the 1918 so-called Spanish flu. And it was only called to the Spanish flu because Spain was not involved in the world war and they were more transparent. And meanwhile, this virus actually emerged out of the U.S. soldiers, first of all, uh, the so-called 1918 Spanish flu. And that flu had a massive impact on the planet um, without having 
all the modes of communication and, and transportation that we have. You know, the estimates are anywhere from 50 to 150 million people uh, died from this. And it was mostly young, pregnant women, young men. It, that was the population that was struck by this. And it went through three different waves. Um, and if you look at the papers at the time, it's quite interesting. It's almost like they just did a, a it's like a Groundhog's Day, masking, social distancing. There are pictures uh, circulating of school children wearing masks from the time. Um, uh, there was a thing in the U.S., which is interesting because it also created social changes. There was the common uh, drinking kind of uh, well or whatever around the States, the common drinking cup. So people will go around, you'd be on the street and there's a, a cup that's a communal cup that you could just kind of dig in, get your fountain or whatever, and you just use that to drink water from. That was a common thing. And because of the social distancing and the hygienic practices that developed after, um, people stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. And so people don't realize that these things have a social impact. They have a political impact. And that's not the first pandemic. There's one that came before in the 1800s and one in the 1700s. And you just go back and back and back. And these pandemics have been happening almost in like a 100-year cycle. But because most people are not around, you know, just about everybody wasn't around 1918. Nobody and those who were, they're too old now to remember. Uh, they're too demented, I guess. And they can't tell you anything about it. They were too young at the time. So that's, that's kind of, a, it's not new in that sense. What's new about it is um, the government structure and the nation state and, and the way that the government now has um, uh, control into your own personal uh, space, uh, that wasn't around at the time. Mm. So that's unique, that's different. And people by nature don't want people encroaching into their own households. And so there's kind of a, a, an understandable reaction against these things. Um, the other thing that I noticed about it is how impoverished scientific thinking and science education is really, you know, in an age that we pride ourselves into, oh, this is a scientific age and everybody thinking scientifically. It's quite amazing to me just to show the failure of this education system and training people to think in a critical way, uh, despite whatever people say about it. And they say, oh, I went to school. I can think critically. No, you can't. You don't. You don't know how to. And it's demonstrated by the, by the way people are reacting to, let's say, the changing advice sometimes. Science is not a thing. It's a way of thinking about things. And it's a way that looks for empirical verification. When you make a claim about an empirical phenomenon, like you say, this thing is going to harm people, then you need to actually demonstrate that it is harming people. And if you say this thing is perfectly safe, then you need to demonstrate that it's actually perfectly safe. And you need to also be comfortable with the fact that your knowledge is limited and the more knowledge you attain, that might actually drive you to change your mind. So in a recent interview with a friend of mine on his podcast, we brought up the example of cleaning surfaces. Um, you know, everybody is like going crazy cleaning all these surfaces with their, with their antiseptics and the alcohol wipes and all of that. Meanwhile, you look into the origin of this whole, um, you know, nervousness about dirty surfaces and viruses and surfaces, it arose out of a, a paper that showed a theoretical possibility based on the survival uh, survivalhood of uh, uh, viral particles of the coronavirus on different types of surfaces. And that was one paper that started this whole thing. But then subsequent papers and subsequent studies and epidemiological studies showing 
that actually this virus is not communicable, communicable through surfaces. You don't get infected from touching a surface. Yet, because we think in very concrete ways and we think in very um, absolute ways about these things, whatever claim you made at the start, that needs to be the claim. And so we just stick with it. So that's an example of us continuing to do a practice that's, I think in my estimation is a bit overkill. It's a bit too much. You've now just, in fact, it's showing itself to be a harmful practice because you're not just wiping the so-called supposed virus from the surface that's going to infect you. You've now cleaned out all of even bacteria that would have been beneficial, the communal bacteria that's around there that your immune system needs to be exposed to at regular intervals for it to function properly and to be in balance. You've now taken all of that out. So not only are you following old aged advice that is no longer valid, you're now actively creating harm for yourself. And we saw uh, there's an example of a report that was released out of New Zealand. Children are coming in with infections that the doctors thought they would never see again, but they're coming up again because the immune system has been compromised due to this practice. Mm. That's one example. The other example is, yeah, people that will, uh, you know, rail against the changing advice of uh, health officials from the start mask, don't mask, masking is effective, masking is not effective. The problem with this is this virus and how it manifested, it's a brand new thing. And we didn't know much about it back in March when this really hit the news and hit the ground running. And so as more knowledge was accumulating, initially they had one particular piece of advice for the public. As more knowledge accumulated and required the change of advice, they rightfully come to the public and say, actually, we thought this was not relevant, it's relevant, and you need to, you know, implement these practices. But the population, because they, they're not trained to think in a scientific way, they're not comfortable mm -hmm. with this, they look at this as wishy-washy, you can't make up your mind. But it's not that, it's, we were limited, and we only knew so much. And now that we know more, this is the advice. And what's interesting about it is, as the advice adapts to the, to the accumulative knowledge, you're actually saving more lives because you're adjusting your advice to go along with the evidence that you're observing because it's impact having a real impact on people's lives. But people don't think in that way and they don't know how to uh, process that. And then you have the rise of this anti-vaxxers as a final thing before I you know, keep uh, rambling too much. Uh, the anti-vaxxers were always there. They've always been doing their thing. But um, uh, just looking at their material and having studied it and really followed them for, a, for a, quite a while, um, this was a, a, a golden opportunity for them because you have a population that doesn't really understand how science works and don't really have much background in basic physiology, um, don't understand how the immune system works itself. And the impact that the pandemic is having on people's livelihoods and lives. And so when you're totally weak, uh, if you look at the research on conspiracy theories, who gets attracted by conspiracy theories and why? Conspiracy theory is kind of like your final frontier to assert um, the right of self-determination, you know, um, independent self-agency that I am not under the control of these people. I'm not a puppet. You know, it's, it's this final kind of retreat that you have when you feel like you're totally helpless and you have nothing else going on for you. So you try to rationalize and come up with an idea about why things are the way they are in an attempt on your part to psychologically gain power over it. But in reality, you're not going to get power. And it's, it can be so powerful to the point where you have 
video is being released now of people literally dying from COVID who actually have died and to their last breaths will say that it's fake, it's not real, or in an ICU in a, on a ventilator, you know, and their last words before they got put on the ventilator was, I'm glad I never got the vaccine. Mm. And it's so powerful that it blinds us even from seeing things that are just, one would think are just clear, you know, in terms of a temporal relation cause and effect. Like if you look at the, at America, for example, all the states with the lowest vaccination rates have the highest surge of the new Delta variants. And they have the highest reported number of deaths and the greater burden on the hospital system. All the states that have the highest vaccination rates, even if they have breakthrough infections of the Delta variant, they actually have very low hospitalization rates, much more you know, milder symptom demonstration, and they're just doing fine. And you look at the numbers, 98% of the people who are dying, they're unvaccinated. Whereas you know those who are vaccinated, very, very minimal, like very low numbers of them are actually having to get hospitalized. Most kind of, even if they are carrying a high viral load and they are infectious, you know, in, in all practical terms, themselves, they're not getting that sick. So when you look at the numbers and you look at like, you get vaccinated, you don't get sick. Or if you do get sick, you get mild. You don't get vaccinated, you do get sick and you could die. And the numbers are just when you demonstrate them, but the conspiratorial minded, uh, and if you don't have background in this area, and if you don't do this research and you don't know the history of it all, um, it, it really has a sway on you. And I think the greatest um, um, contributor to that also is the tribalistic nature of it, the, the sectarianism that comes along with it. If you are uh, in a group of people, I don't know if you watched, um, there's that documentary about uh, social media and it was specifically talking about Facebook and how Facebook- The social um, dilemma. The social dilemma. Yes, and I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, I've seen Highly that. recommend people watch that because it, it's one thing to know that Facebook has an algorithm that puts you into an echo chamber, but it's another thing to actually watch it in real time and, sh and, and, and people who are working in that area explain to you how it actually works to shape your opinion and to create a movement that previously had nothing going for it. Um, and to think that even you as an intelligent, and I think it's important for us to point out, those who are anti-vax or hesitate, hesitant uh, for the vaccine and all that, Pointing this out is not to disparage or to call into question their intelligence. This is anybody susceptible to this. Um, and when you have, and human beings, we're also emotional beings at the same time. When you have fear and anxiety, and I mean, that's all going to come into play. So we all have to acknowledge that even the smartest amongst us can be duped by this and can be, mm -hmm. and can fall victim to this kind of thinking. And the way to get out of it is to really focus on the numbers and try to just suppress for a minute your tribal allegiance. Because right now there are people coming out and they're cutting off friendships with the unvaccinated. Um, they're cutting off family ties if they're not vaccinated. So I'm, I can't be, you know, I can't see you anymore. Um, that's kind of the degree that it's getting to. Um, and so it's, there's a tribalistic element to this that we can't ignore. You can't just keep throwing facts at people. You have to look at it in a very nuanced and multi-pronged way. To understand why they're there. Mm -hmm. there. There's a lot of great points that you touched upon. Um, and I think it's important for us to uh, note, um, it's implied, but for us to mention that when we talk about anti-vaxxers, we're not talking about one homogenous group as if all these people think the same. There are different types of anti-vaxxers. Um, for example, if you go to, um, if you go to Pakistan, 
um, specifically up north, you find that there's a lot of anti-vaxxers. Um, and this isn't just for COVID. This is for many years. And the reasoning behind it is very interesting, is that um, according to them, when the U.S. was chasing after Osama bin Laden, they were knocking on the doors of people saying, we're here to, you know, vaccinate your children. And while they were doing that simultaneously, they were doing some analysis, figuring out where he was hiding. And ultimately, they found him. Um, and so what unfortunately is happening, there's only two countries in the world right now that are still struggling with polio. And that's Afghanistan and that's Pakistan. Mm. And um, for example, the UAE has invested millions of dollars of trying to eradicate polio completely from Pakistan. And there's a good documentary of this on YouTube where they're going door to door to people. But because people still have this skepticism from the bin Laden area, uh, from the bin Laden uh, era, um, they're hesitant to take the vaccine. And I can only imagine what's happening now with COVID and how many people are continuously rejecting the use of a vaccine. And so um, then you have, you know, you have other communities. We have many Palestinians here. Um, I know we, there's an African-American community that are very skeptical, skeptical of governments. And with mm. that, certain individuals are hesitant, you know, when it comes to the vaccine. And I feel like this is like, a, not, I'm not putting blame on anybody, but I'm just saying that these are some of the reasons that I'm finding why people are skeptical. And it's meaning it's not necessarily the science uh, that's uh, the science behind the vaccine as to why they're skeptical, skeptical of it, but, you know, other socio or political or economic reasonings behind it. Definitely. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about John and Rachel uh, and their children, Maddox and, and Heather, um, you know, upper middle class, white, um, you know, uh, living the life and, and having the privilege of whatever privileges they've had accumulated. Um, and they spew the stuff online. Mm. These people actually just become a source of rationalization for the communities that you speak of. I mean, the case with the Bin Laden one, that was a, a really sad uh, one because they actually, it wasn't the U.S. military that was directly doing it. They actually enlisted doctors and nurses who went and would give intel to the military. And so, and these were locals, by the way, which is yeah. even like the damage that that has caused. They, they enlisted locals to do this intel for them. And so rightfully so, if I was in that community, I'd be like, I can't trust you anymore. You know, before, and the doctor, the Hakim, this person was a very trusted individual in the community and they just shattered that, not just for themselves, but for everybody else. And so for a while afterwards, they were, uh, the Taliban was actually targeting um, any vaccination clinics or efforts, killing the nurses, the doctors that were involved in that. My understanding anyways, at least from the reports, um, don't know how true that is, but that's at least what's come out of it. And we see the effect of it, you know, polio. It's just continuing to just ravage through unabated because, you know, there's no, uh, nobody is vaccinating against it. And it's quite sad to see because they were actually on the track to eliminating it mm. before this happened. And then just created the surge back again. So you're right. There's a, you're right to point out there are different reasons why people do it in the Muslim community because we had our share of, I mean, in America specifically, but they've done it in Canada as well. These um, uh, CSIS in Canada or the FBI in, in the States coming through to our masajid and spying and doing all what they do. Um, I mean, why would you trust the government if it's out to get you and to entrap you and to do all of these mm. things? I understand all of that. But that's why I tell people, it's like, okay, you can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, 
you know, you may not trust the government, but that doesn't mean that certain regulations and laws and things that are being put in place um, are there for nefarious reasons all the time. I mean, the speed limit is not there for nefarious reasons. The speed limit on the highway is set by the government. Uh, the seatbelt laws, they're set by the government. And I think if I recall correctly, when they first became a mandate, there was actually pushback from some people against that stuff. Um, you know, the drinking and driving laws, that's there from the government. I mean, that's not, I mean, if you don't, if, if you want to be consistent, then just live as an anarchist, you know, and just live in a state of nature and, uh, but not everything has to be about the government. And also for us as Muslims, we have to look at things in, uh, uh, we're supposed to be looking at things as a, uh, as a community, not as individuals. And I find it really interesting that we have a lot of Muslims that are thinking in this uh, postmodernist kind of individualistic, my body, my choice, my life, I just, mm. as if your existence has no impact whatsoever on everybody else around you. Um, and that you can actively harm people, if not at least passively. And, and for you to not want to take any measures whatsoever, um, that to me is really puzzling to come from Muslims specifically. I can get it from a non-Muslim who's just kind of living their life in the modern era, however the zeitgeist is. But from a Muslim who's talking about the ummah and la darara wa la dirar, there is no harm and there is no reciprocating harm. And we talk all that stuff and then we ignore something that is so vital, so important. Um, that could endanger the lives of others. And you don't know, you might be one who gets COVID and become a super spreader because there's some people who are super spreaders. Imagine that you could infect 3000 people and have 500 people dead. I mean, does that not bother anybody's conscience to think about the possibility of this happening? So I think, I think an important point that uh, I, I want you to highlight because you mentioned this before is that when it comes to you know the history of vaccines, we found that Muslims were one of the most foundational civilizations when it came to the vaccines, such as, you know, the Ottoman Empire and uh, their work on the smallpox. Do you mind expanding upon that? Well, the, the, this is, um, interestingly enough, the history of vaccination actually started out of China, mm. not out of the Muslim uh, civilization. It came out of China and the Ottomans actually picked the the smallpox inoculation, cowpox, from, uh, um, uh, from the Chinese, just through trades and all that. That became a widespread policy in the Ottoman Empire. Lady Montague, who was the wife of the ambassador of, of Great England or the UK or the, the British Empire in Istanbul, she had smallpox before. She was left scarred from it. And so she noticed that they were doing this practice of inoculation in Istanbul. Everybody credits Edward Jenner, but Edward Jenner did it. It didn't actually take off until Lady Montague came back and she started to popularize the practice of inoculation. Mm. So one thing that you'll notice with scientific discoveries, they're not always kind of a linear progression. One person finds it and then like everybody kind of just goes back. You could trace it back that way. Oftentimes you find multiple people coming to the same discovery and it just due to political social circumstances, one person gets the credit and the others are kind of footnotes in history mm. about it. And so, yes, this was a widely practiced thing in the, in the Muslim world, at least in the Ottoman Empire, um, something that they practiced and it was working very effectively. She noted it. She brought it back to England and she popularized it. 
And so um, I think the issue with this, it's uh, the anti-vax movement started out of England and there was bodies out of, um, or organizations out of England, out of France. And it really comes out of this rejection of the government creating mandates and imposing things on people. It, it started off as a political movement that some doctors jumped on the bandwagon and started to cast doubt on the evidence about it. So that's kind of where that comes from. Um, the Muslims being anti-vax, as far as I can tell, this is born out of just the globalization of the monoculture that comes out of America. Because mm. um, there, there's a very strong block of anti-vaxxers in France. There's something a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. Very strong. There's also a strong anti-vax uh, areas in Denmark, for example. And the Danish example is really interesting because the Danes have the most meticulous uh, health record of any nation. Everything is on record. And so you can actually go backwards and look in real time. For example, the study that showed that autism risk is not different between vaccinated and anti-vaccinated and, and vaccinated children. That came out of Denmark because they have the records of everybody and they know who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated and they can do these studies there. But you don't find their work influential worldwide. Mm. It's localized to France and to Denmark. It's the Americans because of, I mean, social media comes out of America. Mm -hmm. It's the Americans. And then also with the aid of, and there is some really interesting work now showing the Russian bots um, and, and this kind of psyops, uh, psy you know, psychological operations using the internet to drive a conversation that comes out of Russia. So the anti-vax movements, their, their material is out of, the, uh, out of the States. And the amplification of that funny enough, is because of the Russian bots mm. that are coming online and creating uh, extra traction for people to discuss these things. And because of the nature of the algorithms of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of that, they actually uh, amplify the voices of those anti-vax accounts. Mm. And so you find that all of the anti-vax literature, it goes back to 12 individuals which is just so fascinating. The Center for Countering Hate, I think, on uh, digital hate uh, is uh, this organization that published a study that linked back something like 65 or 70%, something, I can't remember the specific number, but the majority of material goes back to material that, go, the majority of anti-vax uh, material goes back to the sources that are rooted in people like uh, what's his name? John F. Uh, what's, it's not John F. Kennedy. Is it John F. Kennedy or the, the politician, this American, the American politician from the Kennedy clan? Uh, you have um, uh, Markella or Marcella, uh, this other, I don't know if he's an osteopathic doctor or a naturopathic doctor or something. He's got like a really uh, big following. There is uh, Sherry Tenny Penny. She's another figure. Um, Andrew Wakefield. Um, the disgraced um, physician who fabricated and lied on his research to produce this fraud, fraudulent work, um, and a couple oh, so, others. So now, um, now that you mention Andrew Wakefield, I was waiting for when you were going to mention his name um, because I just uh, I just recently read your review on him and your podcast. Um, obviously, his life story is very big, um, but do you mind condensing? the works of Andrew Wakefield and what he did in particular to the Somali community in Minnesota, because I think is very eye-opening and 
from my limited knowledge, it seems that much of our anti-vaccine, perhaps in our community, stems from this man and his work on autism and his fabrications. So do you mind expanding mm. upon it? So Andrew Wakefield, a lot of people who are anti-vax or vaccine hesitant now may not even know the name. And that's because the movement has grown to such a point um, or to such a degree that it doesn't need him anymore. Mm. He's he spurred it on and then that's it. And in that, I'm just thinking about the hadith in which the Prophet said, <laughs> talking about someone who's you know, uh, creating a, uh, making a sin that now he gets carbon copies of everybody after that person. Like you, you started a bid'ah and then everybody's doing it and it's all on your back. And specifically referring to Abraham Luhay, um, who brought the idols to Mecca. And he وسلم, said that the entirety of idolatry and paganism, all that, the sins of it. Yeah, everybody else is sinning, but he bears the brunt of it on the day of judgment for what he started. Not to create an equivalence between the two, obviously, um, just for those who are going to catch on to this and think that I'm creating an equivalence between these two. But it's just to point out that you can start something and then the origin of, the, the origin of it, the original person involved in it may not be a known figure anymore mm. and largely ignored by people when they talk about it, but they think that they're now thinking through these things. But ultimately, what Andrew Wakefield did, this is a British physician. He was a gastroenterologist. He was initially um, attempting to train as a surgeon in Toronto. And we don't know actually what happened that got him out of surgical training. Uh, but at any rate, he went back to the UK. He trained as a gastroenterologist. He had no patients, which is another interesting fact. He was just in research. Um, and so they call him the doctor without patients, which is an interesting thing to do. You know, medical practice focuses on practice. You need to be practicing medicine. And he was not a practicing physician. He was a physician without patients. And so he had this idea that um, irritable bowel syndrome is caused by some sort of an infection. And that's why people who have IBS and potentially even Crohn's and um, ulcerative colitis, maybe that's caused by some sort of an infection. And he got inspired by the works of Barry Marshall. And I can't remember for the love for the life of me, I can't remember the, his partner's name. Uh, these Australian physicians who basically won the Nobel Prize for showing that stomach ulcers are mostly caused by H. pylori bacterial infection, and you can treat it with antibiotics. And mm. so Andrew Wakefield's idea that he got an inspiration from, from them was maybe it's an infection. And then he goes and he starts reading the encyclopedia of, of, of viruses. Literally, that's how he did it. He just mm. sat down, read the encyclopedia, and then he got to M, measles, and he just saw some of the uh, symptomology, how measles manifests. And then he drew a link between how measles, measles manifests and how the symptoms of IBS are in the, in the bowels. And then he just proposed a hypothesis. So far, nothing wrong with that. A lot of ideas in science come about from doing this kind of thing. You hypothesize something, you say, I think this is how it's working. Now you gotta test it out. Let's show, let's show me the money. Does it actually do it this way? Mm -hmm. So he tried to isolate um, samples from patients with uh, IBS, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, all of that. Um, didn't find measles anywhere. There was no measles that is significant um, in any of these samples. But one of the, um, uh, the organizations that is an anti-vax organization in the UK caught wind of what he was doing. She was working with a lawyer, the chairperson of it. She was working with a lawyer who was trying to sue the pharmaceutical companies uh, for the vaccine, saying that the vaccine caused her son's autism. None of the doctors were signing up. She saw a link that they can kind of create this unholy marriage between their two causes uh, because she, there, it was noted and it's still noted. We know that children with autism have bowel problems. 
And if you know the neuroscience of it, it actually makes perfect sense that they would have bowel problems because you have three different nervous centers in your body, which interestingly enough, as a side note, kind of aligns with the chakras in the Hindu kind of Vedic uh, uh, tradition. You have your central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, but then you have a, a cardiac nervous system, which is, it can work independently from your, uh, from your brain. Um, we know that from heart transplants because you sever all the connections and then you put in a brand new heart with its own nervous system, uh, 50,000 neurons or so, and it functions on its own. It starts, the heart starts to beat first before the nervous system is even developed. So there's that nervous system. And then you have also the enteric nervous system. There's an entire chapter in the textbook on neuroscience when I teach this course at the university on the enteric nervous system. About um, 90% of your serotonin receptors are in your stomach, in your bowels. That's where they are, which is why when people take antidepressants, they have bowel problems, um, mm. which begs the question, can you treat depression and these things with dietary changes? You know, And there's some interesting research on that front as well. So it's not surprising to find that autistic children who have an abnormal nervous system development, that they would also have abnormal bowels. You don't need to attribute that to, the, to measles or to... Um, uh, or to any type of infection, you know? So it didn't make sense to some people who are in the field, this hypothesis, but let's just run with it. Let's do the experiments. Experiments do not confirm what he hypothesized. Unlike what a good scientist would do, he didn't stop. He didn't just say, look, my idea was wrong. My hypothesis did not, um, you know, it was not confirmed. Let's go explore something else. Let's find out another mechanism. He persisted and insisted that this was caused by the measles virus, and he, um, long story short, those who are interested can look at Brian Deere's work and look into the history of it all. But he had graduate students in his lab who actually came out, one particular one came out afterwards and said, whatever was published in the papers that tried to link autism to the bowel problems, to measles, the guy who actually did the legwork in the lab said, none of the results published mirror what he actually found in the lab. So there was fabrication, in the results to drive home hypothesis and make it become a, an actual theory. Unfortunately, with science, um, these frauds are not exposed right away. Mm. These frauds take time to come out. And the way that they actually get exposed is by other scientists trying to replicate the work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in Arabic for Sudan, in Sudan, we say, you know, the, 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 the rope of lying is really short. You really see that in the scientific community. You can make a claim and you could say, look, guys, I did the study. I did the measurements and this is what I found. And all you have to say, oh, yeah, can you show me what you did? And then I'll go and do it myself and make sure that this happened. Hmm. Not a single lab was able to replicate his studies. His own student, his PhD student comes out and says, actually, whatever is reported is a lie. Here are my raw data the raw data that I have do not reflect what he published. All of the authors on his paper that was published on this retracted with the exception of one who was just a friend of his. Hmm. They retracted their names and didn't want anything to do with it. And after a lengthy investigation and exposure of the fraud, the paper itself was retracted. Now, this was too late then though. It's created a social movement. And parents, and, and I think it's, it's actually a, a quite criminal to put mothers into this position, to make moms think 
that by them going and getting their children vaccinated, that they cause their children's autism. I mean, I can't wow. imagine the type of guilt that you have now put onto these mothers, making them think that their child was completely fine before. And because of something that they did, they caused it to them. When in fact, the scientific research on autism is pretty unanimous now on the developmental origins of it. The fact that this happens in the, in the womb as the nervous system is developing, that you can identify it with an ultrasound well before any vaccines have come into the picture, that you can actually, it doesn't matter if you were vaccinated or not, the rate of autism is the same. And these children, from the moment they're born, there are ways for you to be able to tell that there's an issue, but because infants, when they're born, they don't do much. They just eat and they, and they just breastfeed and that's it. That's all they do or bottle feed. They don't do anything else. So you're not able to actually see deficits. You don't get to see the deficits until they start to interact and crawl and play and do things. That's when you really get to see it. Because autism is not a phenotypically obvious disorder. It's a behavioral cognitive situation. Mm -hmm. So you need the child to grow enough to be able to interact enough for you to actually see delays and milestones that are going to be diagnostic of autism. So a lot of the research now is looking at, can we identify these children well before? And so you can do an ultrasound scan in the second trimester. And what they found is that on average, these children's heads are actually twice the size of a normal developing child, mm. fetus in the, in the womb. Um, the connections in their brains are actually much more extensive. Um, you can tell even with their eye gaze from very, from their early months on, just by some scanning and just to see where they fixate their gaze, you can make a reasonable estimate of whether this child is going to develop into someone with autism or not. Um, and all of this is before any vaccines are administered, by the way. Hmm. So this is the situation with that particular study. Now he, he continued, you know, he got his license revoked in, in the UK. He can't practice as a physician anymore. So what he's become is this kind of like godlike figure for the anti-vax movement, whenever he comes around, he produced two movies, uh, Vaxxed, there's two versions, two, two, one and a follow-up one to it. And if you watch that, if you're in the field, if you're in medicine or in science, you can actually like pick out all the problems in the way that the uh, explanations are given. And in fact, you can even point out that um, in one case that's uh, related in the Vax movie, the mother, her child uh, passed away. You could tell what was the, was the cause of passing away and it had nothing to do with the vaccine. It was with the case of bronchitis that the child had. Mm. It's so glaringly obvious, but obvious to me, like as a doctor, as a researcher, I could tell these things. But because of the way the story is spun and the narrative that they, he does, and he goes around and does this, it's really, um, it captures, it captivates. And so he went to, he was invited to Minnesota. I think it was 2003, 2013. I can't remember the specific date off the top of my head here, but anybody who's interested can find this when they just quickly Google search measles outbreak, Minnesota, Somali community. Hmm. And they'll give you the timeline of what happened. What happened was the Somali community had something like a 98% immunization rate against measles. They were actually higher than the national average. They had zero cases of measles. Andrew Wakefield shows up. The vaccination rate drops to something like 40% in five years. And then boom, that measles cases start to pop up and something like 20 or 21 children end up being hospitalized for this. I don't remember how many, if any have died from it, but 
hospitalization means the case has gotten to such a serious point that they needed to have 24 hour care mm -hmm. in a hospital setting. And so God knows what ended up happening with these 20 children or 21 children. But the point is this, what, this is the effect of Andrew Wakefield. Uh, the anti-vaxxers went to the Orthodox Jewish community in New York. They got them to stop vaccinating. A couple of years later, they start to get measles outbreaks mm -hmm. as well. They're now doing it in the African-American community. Same thing. The thing with the African-American community, though, uh, right now with COVID, because they were lagging, um, now they're starting to catch up to the national average with, um, in the States at least, with the vaccinations. The reason they're starting to catch up is, unfortunately, which is, this is the really infuriating thing for me. Um, it required them to see loved ones die, you know, just needlessly just, just die off at a higher rate. Some of their own community going down to the ground and just saying, guys, we need to get this. And because and, it's a relational thing for a lot of minority communities, hit the ground running, try to get the vaccination rates up. And that's what got them. It's, it's basically the economic and, and life pressure, the lost lives and the livelihoods that are being impacted. That's now driving the, the uptick in vaccination rate in the African American community. Um, and so that's kind of what you see with their, with his effect everywhere Wakefield goes measles follows him hmm. and wherever measles follows him, you have children getting hospitalized and some of them dying. And I don't care what you say about how advanced medicine is. If your immune system, if your body is too fragile to be able to handle an infection of this kind, it, uh, we can try to give you supportive therapies all we want. Um, some people are just going to have, they're just going to succumb to it. So I don't know. I think the Muslim community needs to do better when it comes to this. And we need to, and, and we have a, a, a very strong bent on conspiratorial thinking, you know, um, uh, making a lot of assumptions, um, you know, giving a lot of uh, hypothetical explanations and we ignore the evidence in front of us. I'll actually mm -hmm. close off before I, cause I've been rambling for too long. I don't want this to be a mono, a monograph, but <laughs> There's an interesting passage from Malik bin Nabi, this Algerian philosopher, may Allah have mercy upon him. Malik bin Nabi, right? Yeah, Malik bin Nabi. Hmm. He, he writes in one of his books that he saw a professor in Algeria and he was talking about the difference and, and, and he's problematizing this. He's like, this is the problem with the way that Muslims think about this stuff today. He's talking about modern Muslims. This professor is sitting in a university, uh, in a lecture hall, and he's talking about a plant. And he's describing the plant and the plant's picture is in the textbook and he's getting all the students to look in the textbook and they're having a back and forth about it and they're discussing it in an abstract way. And Malik bin Nabi just notes, meanwhile, the professor ignores the fact that the plant was literally outside his window. <laughs> he could have just plucked it up and just showed it to them. You know, so Allah Mustaan. SubhanAllah. Um, the one thing I really wanted to ask you on, because we're on the topic of vaccines and anti-vaxxers, is we have the J&J &J vaccine, um, which came out and said, you only need one shot. Um, its efficiency rate, I believe, was not, at, was not the highest, I think 50 to 60%. Um, but then you have an institution like Darul Qasim um, in Chicago in the United States, and they have an incredible team um, of scholars doctors and they've done a lot of work on the realm of bioethics and they came out and they published a fatwa saying that the J&J &J you're familiar with the situation correct yeah so I am vaguely familiar I read that I read that once that fatwa and um 
they were against it and they said you something else i think it was that that was the case so they i think what, what so what they were saying is that the vaccine is haram um because yeah. it uses fe like uh, ab aborted feces cells yeah 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 um and in it and then i think um a couple months after that the united states banned the j and j vaccine because it was giving these other um, implications, these other reactions. But my point being is we even have these prominent institutions. I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying that they are, you know, they've published a fatwa saying this is not permissible. And now you I have, have to say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I have to say about this. Um, and I, I, and I mean, no disrespect whatsoever to the people that produce this fatwa, but when it came out before I read it, I was really hoping to read something like the Vatican statement on vaccinations that use um, uh, derivatives of fetal cells. And the Vatican statement uh, by Pope Benedict, I believe it was, um, Ratzinger, um, was actually much more nuanced. It was much more informed. It was much more philosophically um, 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 satisfying, I guess you would say, to read that one compared to the one that came out of Dar al-Qasim. Because as soon as I read the one about Dar al-Qasim, I'm like, you've basically just banned all vaccines. Hmm. You've just went after all of them. And you also did it based on a misunderstanding of how um, uh, the original story, even the, the origin of, these, of this research comes from how these fetal cells were derived, where they came from, what was the situation at the time? Because there are two fetal lines um, uh, from the 60s and the 70s, uh, through which they're, they're immortalized, quote-unquote, immortalized cell lines um, that a lot of this research is based on. But none of these vaccines that are produced today are actually um, contain anything remotely related to any aborted fetuses. Um, this is just a, a misunderstanding of, of the initiation of this whole research and where it came from and some assumptions that are unfounded on the, on the people that did it. And I think it actually points to a, a much bigger problem, which is the, um, uh, the artificial division between Islamic studies and scholarship and fatwa and um, the realm of medicine and science. And you know, we've, our Islamic education is secularized. So you either go to, um, uh, to a madrasa of some sort, or you go to a Dar al-Ulum of some sort, and you go to Dar al-Qasim, and that's all you do but have very minimal, if any, grasp of anything to do with anything outside of, you know, you've, mashallah, you've done some really immense things. You've memorized the Quran in the different qiraat. You've studied all of these texts on fiqh and hadith and fatwas and all of that, but you have zero background when it comes to this. And I think the idea that you can consult, quote unquote, consult, uh, we have physicians consulting on this. I think that idea is also problematic. I think you need a physician who actively studies this stuff along with studying Sharia. You need like a single mind to, to synthesize all that information together. Um, and that's what you actually find in the Catholic church. You have people who are actually astronomers, physicists, um, scientists of different kinds, doctors who are also priests. And so when they opine on these things, they're opining from a, from a place of experiential as well as theoretical knowledge. It's not something that they just read. So when you look at that fatwa, and I don't have it in front of me here, but if you look at that fatwa and just zoom out for a second, you've basically negated just about the entirety of the immunization schedule. 
with that fatwa, even though they say it's about the J and J vaccine, mm-hmm. it is such an uh, it's it's uh, now a weapon for all the anti-vaxxers because they can use it and generalize from it. Well, the J and J vaccine does this. Well, the rest of them all do the same thing. So therefore, all of it you can just negate the entire thing. And now you got a, a health crisis on your hand because you misunderstood the origin of this whole thing. Those fetuses that were aborted, they were not aborted for the purpose of vaccine research. There's kind of a distinction that you do. Um, uh, albeit it's a philosophical distinction, but it's an important distinction that you need to make. What was the reason for the abortions of these fetuses? Hmm. These women were going to abort regardless, no matter what you try to do. And they went ahead with it. There are, what, you, what, what do you do with these fetuses after they're aborted? They're usually destroyed. So what the researchers at the time did with them was, look, you can either destroy these fetuses or make use of the cells from which these fetuses came out of hmm. and do the research on it. At the time, ethics committees that we have nowadays didn't exist in the way that they do now. Um, you got away with a lot of egregious things um, in the 60s and the 70s, scientifically speaking, just so that you can advance your scientific curiosities and interests. But now you have a situation in which there is now an established cell line. You have an established research. You have an established way of doing things. And now you're coming after the fact. The ruling before something happens, at least in fiqh, is different from the ruling after it happens. So the analogy I can draw to you is same gathering. Ibn Abbas has a man come up to him and say, is there a tawbah for murder? And he looks at him and he says, no, there isn't. There is no tawbah for killing somebody. And then same gathering, a second man comes through after that man exits. Is there a tawbah? Is there repentance for killing someone? And Ibn Abbas looks at him and says, yes, there is. And so the man leaves. Same question, opposing answers. When Ibn Abbas is asked by his students, why did you do this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Are you flipping and flopping? Are you being wishy-washy about this? No, it was obvious the first man was angry and he wanted to get an ex- a way out. He wanted to kill somebody and he wanted to be told that he can, perform- he can repent after he kills that person. And so I had to tell him no so that he would desist. The second person came through and it was obvious in his expression that he has actually committed a crime. He committed murder and mm-hmm. he was feeling the guilt and he wants to repent back to his Lord. So obviously I told him, yes, you can. You can apply the same kind of idea into this situation. There is no um, abortion right now, or after those two cases, by the way, or three cases, there's no abortion now that is being performed for the sake of doing scientific research. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're not taking the fetal cells and doing any research with it. We're talking about a progeny. These cells have replicated and replicated and replicated to the point that cells that are used now, they're not the same cells that came out of that original cell that was taken out from the fetus. This is the progeny. It's like the HeLa cells. Those in biology, one of the first things you study when you study cell biology about uh, HeLa cells. Uh, Henrietta Lacks, this African-American woman who had cervical cancer, ravaged her body. She ended up passing away. They took her cells, her cancer cells, without consent from her family or her before she passed away. And because cancer cells are kind of immortalized. So a lot of the cells that you use in cell biology labs right now at SFU, at UVic, they're actually derivatives from the HeLa cells. We're doing research on cells that were acquired without consent um, to this day, and her family is still going through the battles of, of that um, with court systems and whatnot. So 
there are no the gist of all of this for the lay person. There are no fetal cells in the vaccines, um, and there are no fetuses being aborted actively to do research on these vaccines. Mm-hmm. And anything to say to suggest that is just a blatant lie. And the fatwa that is released by Dar al Qasim, with all due respect, is fatwa is not binding, technically speaking. You don't have to follow it. And in my humble estimation, I think it's misinformed hmm. um, and it is incomplete and it requires revisiting. You know, the question I have, and this is um, this might take us down another lane, is that is oh, there before a... you ask a question, just uh, there's one more, more thing. Yeah. You said the efficiency or the efficacy of it. Um, what the vaccines are for is to protect against severe disease, and they are all equivalent in protection against severe disease. Hmm. So whichever vaccine you get, it doesn't matter. Those higher numbers that you hear, they're more about mild symptoms. So, but when we talk about severe disease, they all equally are effective. J&J, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, whatever. Hmm. That's good to hear, alhamdulillah. Um, you know, we have people who, you know, one of the main arguments I hear from this anti-vaccine movement, which is directly related to what you said, is that about 1% or less than a percent of people are dying from, from COVID. Um, and they said, if you take the vaccine, your chances of that decrease, but you can still die from it. What is your response to them? So 1%, right? So if we say that this virus hits 10 million people, and now you say 1%, that's 100,000 people. That we're saying that if you took the vaccine, you could protect, say, 90,000 people. So 90,000 people are not going to die anymore. I mean, the thing is, there's this Arabic uh, line in poetry. Um, if you don't die by the sword, you will die by other than the sword. <laughs> the causes are many, but death is one. So we're not trying to prevent death absolutely. We're trying to preserve life to the degree that we are capable of with the limitations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala imposes on us. And so, is a command in the Quran. Do not throw your do not throw yourselves into ruins. Don't kill yourselves, in other words. So when we take the vaccine, we're saying that we're protecting these lives. We're not trying, you know. Do you want so far? There's about with all the lockdowns and the restrictions on travel and everything, close to five million people died. According to the latest numbers that have come across, I could be off by a little bit, but so far about 5 million people have died uh, from COVID. That's with restrictions in place. Now, imagine if there were no restrictions whatsoever, and this thing was allowed to just run rampant across Mm. the entire globe with all of the flights and communication means and modes and transportation and all of that. What would have happened? You know, there's a lot of mass venues that were canceled, concerts, games, whatever have you, movie theaters. All these things that we just take for granted, that we just do, that would have just really destroyed. It would have been, it's kind of like our generation Spanish flu, hmm. but we now have a lot of means to control um, how damaging it can be. You are not going to prevent death absolutely, but what you're doing is you're preserving life. And, and you can't talk about human lives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, if you make one life, if you give life to one person, it says if you you preserve life for the entirety of humanity. And if you kill one person, it says if you kill the entirety of humanity. We as Muslims should not speak in the language of 1% and 2%. Mm. 
These are people's lives at, at stake here. So when I hear these numbers, I'm not thinking percentages. I'm thinking 100,000 people. That's, that's a lot of people to just kill off because you don't want to get the vaccine for reasons that are actually unjustifiable and it's based on an ignorance on your part about the whole process. So no, I don't want 100,000 people to die. If I can prevent the death of 90,000, and Allah says preventing the death of one is like preventing the death of the entirety of humanity, then that's a good odd for me to do. So no, uh, you say that it's, and that's not, and, and the thing is you're thinking just COVID. It's not just COVID. So here in, in Australia, the, uh, the state of New South Wales is having a massive outbreak right now. So they have all these cases, like 240 cases per day in Sydney, and like it's all over the place, and, and people are not adhering to lockdowns and rules, and it's getting kind of crazy. The thing about it is there are 665, I think, um, ICU beds in the entirety of the state, New South Wales. 50 of them so far have now been taken up by COVID patients, okay? So you say 100 you know, 1%, whatever. Out of 240 some odd cases per day for the last few weeks, we now have 50 ICU beds occupied by COVID patients and something like 28 of them are requiring, requiring ventilation. So now we are down to 615 ICU beds left in the entirety of the state. The thing is, usually there is a shortage of ICU beds anyways before COVID. People are still having accidents. They're still having heart attacks. They're still having aortic dissections. Mm -hmm. They're still having surgeries. People are still needing ICU beds for other reasons. But now when you occupy the entire hospital with COVID patients, because you didn't want to get the vaccine, all of those people that continue to have all these other issues, they're not able to access these services anymore. So the death toll is actually going to be much greater than the 1% you're talking about. It's going to also have to include all of those people who didn't have COVID, who needed the ICU bed, but because of those patients who mm -hmm. have COVID, now they can't get access to it. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a very dramatic increase in death numbers from multiple reasons, not just from COVID. And that's the issue that a lot of people don't seem to wrap their heads around. It's not just COVID. It's everything else is going to come along with COVID. Mm. Precisely. And um, there, there, there's another argument, which I hear often, and I know you shared a Facebook post from a prominent doctor addressing it is this idea that the vaccine was rushed and it was created too quickly. And because of that, we need to wait, we need to give it some more time to see how it's going to be in the long run. Nonsense. Um, the reason for it not being nonsense is because people who make that argument are people who have never written a research grant in their life. They've never had to go through a research committee to approve their proposal uh, internally in the organization and then externally with the government agency. They don't know how long it actually takes to get these things done. The, the amount of time that's wasted in bureaucracy and procedures just to get a research done is insane. Mm. So when you hear that it takes 10 years to get a drug from start to finish, that's from start, like absolutely, like the idea was generated. It's a brand new idea. We don't have any precedent to it. And now they got to write a grant and they got to kind of get it approved and do the preliminary studies and get some results, publish those results, show that there is efficacy, there is promise in this, then go back, rewrite another grant and then go back and forth. And it just takes on and on and on. But if you condense, I think about it almost like the way that people work nowadays. How much work are you actually performing in an eight hour workday? 
And I think the number came down to like 45 minutes because the rest of the time we're all just kind of chit chatting and wasting time and hanging by the water fountain and going into the kitchen and eating our lunch. And like, there's a lot of time wasted, you know, in an eight hour workday, there's only about 45 minutes of actual work being performed in an eight hour workday. That's kind of how you need to think about this. If you take away all of this time suck, and you have a massive company that has multiple research projects, all of a sudden say to all of the research projects, guys, we're going to pause everything. We're just going to do this one thing. We're just going to focus on this one project. We're going to get all the scientists that are, their minds are scattered onto different things. All of us are going to focus on this one thing. Not only that, the research on this actually began in 1985. So we have a body of research that is about 35 years old so far, 36 years old body of research that's available to us that we can draw from now. And it becomes a matter of tweaking. And then actually there were attempts at even constructing these vaccines back in 2011 and 2013 with the SARS and the MERS outbreaks. But because those outbreaks died off pretty quickly and they did not take over the entire world, that, that research actually got put on pause for, you know, for all intents and purposes. It wasn't really given much support. So we have all of this background building up and ready to go. And now we've got the infrastructure already established and built for it. Let's just focus on this one thing and just get it done. Mm. And it's quite amazing. It's like people that say like, you know, uh, you, you sit on a, um, uh, if you have a book agent and you're sitting on a book proposal and you've been collecting all the material and then all of a sudden the book agent says, I need this next week. Well, if you're going to start from scratch, it's impossible. But if you've been sitting, like when I wrote my PhD, I did it literally in a week. It took me a week. I just, I finished the entire thing in a week. But why? Well, all my graphs were done. I had them in different presentations that I gave at seminars at the university. Um, all of the material was done because I've written papers about the, the PhD itself, which I could draw like entire paragraphs from and just rewrite a little bit and just, you know, put it into my thesis. Um, I had additional figures available, put it into my thesis. It wasn't, yeah, I stayed like for a very prolonged period of time sitting in front of my computer, getting eye fatigue and just, you know, getting tired and working for 14, 16, 17 hours straight. But I did it in a week, but that wasn't because I went out and worked like a madman. I just collected the work that was already available. And then I synthesized it, created, you know, put my conclusion together and then produced it. And my draft was done in a week hmm. for it to be evaluated. It's kind of the same thing. This thing was not rushed. It's rushed for those who are outside the area, have no idea about what's going on, spent their entire lives, you know, focused on whatever it is that they're focused on. You might have an accounting business. You might have an academic career going on for you and some other unrelated field, um, whatever it is. I mean, people are busy doing other things. You're not expected to keep up to date with everything. And so obviously when it just all of a sudden shows up, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. There's something nefarious about this. Something doesn't smell right. Because everything you've heard before about how research is gave you a wrong impression of how long it actually takes to get these things done and what it takes to get them done. But if you think there have been shortcuts taken, um, that is absolutely not the case. Um, and some of the things that were also, that sped this up was uh, some of the things that were artificially or arbitrarily uh, put into a linear progression. Like you need to first finish this stage before you go into the next stage. When they reassessed, they said, well, we don't actually need to wait for the results of that stage to go into this stage. Can we just do both of them in tandem? Mm -hmm. 
And so there was a lot of parallel, uh, parallelizing, like to do things in parallel um, of, of different stages and phases of the research itself to get it done, uh, to get it done quickly. Um, so I think actually it, it's, if anything, if this points to anything, it points to the fact that we can probably cure things like AIDS and cancer and because it just shows like when you get people mm -hmm. together focused on one thing, it's amazing what humanity can accomplish when we just focus on one thing. And the reason we focused on it is because it's uh, the, the, the kind of the nice way to say it is, oh, it's about human lives and that. But ultimately, let's just be real here. It's about economics. These, co these governments in these companies and, and, and the collapse of society economically is, is taking place as we watch it. And there are financial interests at hand and they just can't keep going like this. And so that's why, that's really the driver behind all of this. They want to get everybody back onto the rat race, back into the same patterns before that was running the world that it was before. I don't think it will go back to the same thing. There's going to be some fundamental changes, but to, to, to hypothesize things, usually we just try to fill in the gaps with hypotheses and conspiracy theories because we just have no idea about what's happening. The mm -hmm. amazing thing about it is that all this is transparent. You can actually go and read about it, read up about it, understand it, study it properly. Um, but if you're just going to spend your time on Facebook and WhatsApp forwarded messages to you by, you know, videos by somebody sitting in the middle of, I don't know where, uh, telling you, warning you about the, up, the oncoming doom and the tyranny of the government. I mean, every time I hear that these governments are tyrannical, I'm actually, I get quite offended. Uh, if you call this tyranny, I'm like, you don't understand what tyranny is mm. and all these people that are fighting for their lives just to basically speak a word of truth against their governments in whether it's the Uyghurs in China, that's tyranny. You're not in tyranny, homie. You're you're living the life. You're getting a check from Justin Trudeau. Justin, your pre, your prime minister's name is Justin. That's that's how good of a life you got going on. It's Justin who's sending, cutting you a check, and you call that tyranny. Um, it's quite offensive when you really think about it. I find that hilarious the comparison you made. Of I'm just imagining, you know, an average person, you know, um, who's sitting on his couch on Facebook talking about how tyrannical his government is. And then his wife or sibling comes and says, oh, here's the government check that we, we got every two weeks of $2,000. And then him continuing the post, uh, subhanAllah. Um, you know, we've touched on many topics. Um, just, on, just on a closing note, uh, just before I get to that, the way I answer this question of the vaccine was rushed is I just think about the construction of buildings. And whenever it comes to building an, uh, an infrastructure such as a hospital or a university, these things take years um, because of how big they are on the type of work that needs to be done. But what was quite fascinating, fascinating is when COVID first began in China, the Chinese government, because the Chinese people, you know, whether or not they're tyrannical or not, is they're very disciplined people. And so the government yeah. said, we need to create a hospital in Wuhan. And within three, four days, they created an entire hospital. <laughs> um, it's insane when you think about it. It's like, it's amazing. Like, oh my God, you can just erect these things overnight. Exactly, exactly. And so yeah. for me, that was evidence that, look, if you really put your mind to something and you dedicate all the funding and you have people working 24 hours on something, it'll be done a lot faster than what it's usually done on. Um, but just on a closing note, um, it's very clear to hear, you know, I'm sure the readers can pick up 
that every time you know you're speaking on this subject, there's a level of frustration. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I'm usually <laughs> relaxed. Um, what is it specifically that is really bothering you within our own community about this subject? Um, I think it's 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 for me it's um, a frustration with because I, I, I there's this poem by Mustafa Hamam Hamam Mustafa Hamam Alamatni Hayat Life has taught me and I really this poem I really resonate with I'm not the best at memorizing poetry but in it there's a couple of lines where he says that I don't want for my ummah for my people um, a humiliation and um, uh, and a debasement I want dignity for it and i want honor for my ummah um and one of the things that frustrates me with it is i look at our um heritage and our tradition and it's a tradition of fact checking i mean the greatest uh, feat that any civilization has done of their own accord if you want to point to anything is that the muslims have done that nobody else is able to do is verification of reports mm. Like our hadith tradition is unmatched by anybody else. I mean, you have non-Muslims that will attest like, yeah, you're right. That's the Quran. That's your prophet. You know, that's it. We're not going to argue with you guys about the validity of it. The, the Christians still have to argue the validity of their gospels. We don't have to argue about the Quran. When it comes to the hadith tradition, the amount of energy that our ancestors have put in to just make sure that what we got was the unadulterated sunnah of the beloved Sallallahu That you know that when you pray, this is how he saw and prayed. Despite the different schools, you know, Malikis and Shafi'is and Hanafis, and you put your hand wherever you put it, you know that this actually has a, an, a source and it goes back to a way in which the Prophet Sallallahu prayed. Like for us to know these things, to know, I mean, how, to just know the number of white gray hairs that he saw and had in his face and just to know these things, to, to me that, this is an ummah that takes knowledge seriously. It takes verification seriously. When I look at the Quran and I recite it on a day-to-day -day basis, Allah is pointing us to go look and, and, and examine and find out how I did these things. Allah is telling you, I created these things. Go study it. Go find out about it. And so when I see Muslims just sharing posts on Instagram and on WhatsApp, you know, and using that as a... And then the, the, the vitriol, you know, you see people that you would have thought were kind of, you know, upright individuals whose tongues are pure from profanity and all of that. All of a sudden that goes out the window and they start to, to spew the most vitriolic discourse type thing on their comment on the comment sections of events and, and, and gatherings just because they're anti-vaxxers now and, and they're anti-government and they're, you know, they're telling us how it is and this is the taghut, this is the way of the taghut and we're just combating that and this is the, and then they, they, they bring into it the dajjal and this is the dajjal now working on you and all of that. And I'm just saying, I was like, this has nothing to do with the way that Muslims have ever done things. And it just, to me, the frustration is, so what, we studied all of this as, the, as theory? Like we're, mm. I mean, I'm seeing now so-called imams people who have studied at like prestigious universities, like Islamically speaking, or at least they were known to be prestigious universities, engaging in the most asinine discourse about this stuff. And I use this word very selectively, like it, it's certain things will really put me off. And to see someone who's supposedly scholarly, throw all that out the window and act like you're 
unlettered auntie sitting in the village somewhere in Sudan or in Pakistan or whatever, sharing these WhatsApp messages. And I mean, no offense to aunties sitting in these, but that's what they know. That's, this is the world that they live in and this is how they transmit information and what they think about. And that's how they think. They actually have an excuse, but those individuals in the Western community where you have access to all that, you have zero excuses in my books. And when you're spreading all of this, because I have family members, I know family members that they actually cannot get vaccinated because they have, they're on, they have a condition, they have an immunomodulator that they're taking, they're taking some drugs that affect their immune system. They technically are actually not qualified to be able to get vaccinated because your immune system is not functioning in the way that a normal immune system, healthy immune system would function. So they're vulnerable. They can still get COVID. And if they do get COVID because of their comorbidities, those individuals are at very high risk of death. Hmm. So, and it's, to me, I'm not afraid of death. That's not our thing here. But at the same time, not being afraid of death doesn't mean you can just go walk in the middle of a busy highway. Like, I'm, I'm not afraid of death. It's stupidity. And so it's, of course, it's frustrating because I expect more from Muslims. Because Allah says that we are supposed to be the ones he brought us in service of the people to bear witness to the truth, to guide to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that puts us in kind of a special position, a special status. That means we're more answerable. We have a more of a responsibility. And if a wrongdoer comes to you with a piece of news, confirm it. I see zero confirmation. I just see people sharing things. And when you're in the middle of that research area and, and that field, and you see what they're sharing, you're like, I know exactly where you got this from. And it's so blatantly obvious that you don't even have the basics, right? Because if you did, you would have seen right through that argument. But yet you still continue to share it. And now we have, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine in his community, um, not going to mention the ethnicity, but just out of respect to, because I love that particular ethnicity. It's like, it's the nurses that are the first to share the anti-vax mm -hmm. stuff. I'm like, oh my God, I can't understand what the logic and the rationality, where that went to. You come, you pray, you talk about following the sunnah. Well, this is the first thing that you need to be following, confirming and verifying reports. And you don't even know the source of the piece of thing that you got, this infographic that you're sharing from Instagram, thinking that it's telling you something. I don't know. It's just, Subhanallah. yes, I get very frustrated with this because I have high expectations of my people. And I think, you know, even when you look in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِي Right? Ask the yeah. people of knowledge if you don't know. And to me, the idea that all of the doctors in the world are in on this conspiracy theory, um, like Dr. Ghilan, um, he's paid by some agency who's uh, telling him to say these things. <laughs> you know what? They sent me the shirt too. You know, it's, it's amazing kind of get up. It's just, it's really nice. You, 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 know, you know who you look like right now? Now, uh, maybe I'll try to get somebody to make a meme of this. You look like... Um, um, oh my god, how am I blinking out? Uh, Chadwick Boseman in the <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and he's got that, it's literally, it looks almost identical to be honest. And the fit Bro, is nice. As I need well. to get more of these, then I need to get more of these. These are nice. Where's that from? I got this from Sugar Clothing. Uh, you guys can find it online, um, and you can order from them. Very nice, very nice material. I've had this for a few years. It's actually some of my most favorite things to wear. Very comfortable. The only thing you're missing now is a mask. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's the next thing. 
but you you wear a mask on your day-to-day basis anyway um so that, that well alhamdulillah where we are we actually are safe here for now so let's okay. hope that um it continues that way alhamdulillah alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. i think um you know this is this is a topic which is um you know, I haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen too much uh, material come out on this topic um, from our own community, which is why I felt uh, with the plethora of topics I could have done with you, I felt this one was the one um, that was most important to our community. And inshallah, hopefully, you know, many people that are watching this that are skeptic of the vaccine um, will um, begin the endeavor of uh rebrain clean you know brainwashing you know the literal meaning of brainwash is to wash your brain it's not necessarily yeah. in a bad way so just yeah, yeah so just brainwash yourself um away from these ideas unlearn these ideas which you've been taught um and get vaccinated i think um as a closing to this from my end none of this constitutes medical advice to any particular individual Everybody needs to go talk to their GP, to their healthcare provider, um, who knows your history, knows what your conditions are, knows what your vulnerabilities are, and can recommend something that's tailored to you. For most people, it's going to be, yes, get vaccinated, but it's going to be a select group of people who may not actually qualify, and that's why you need to talk to your GP. Uh, So that's number one. And the second thing is, nothing in life is risk-free. And I think we need to normalize talking about risk. Mm. You know, people talk about like, there's no risk with vaccinations. No, there is. I mean, there's some people, there's a, a very, very, very rare disorder that happens to uh, like one in a million people when they do get the vaccine. But the thing is with those individuals, they would have gotten that disorder if they got COVID itself because the vaccine works mm. and it stimulates the immune system in the same particular way to generate immunity. So if that person got COVID, they would have gotten Chances are they might have gotten that clotting disorder anyways. So that's where you need to talk to your healthcare provider, find out what your underlying conditions are, make sure that you take an informed decision um, that's between you and that healthcare provider. But if you're talking about general advice, what is the advisory here? The advisory is get, get vaccinated. And yes, you're going to get some mild effects. Like you're going to feel a little bit, I felt for 12 hours after I got my second dose of Pfizer. Yeah, I was a bit groggy, a bit foggy, a bit tired, you know, joint pains or whatever. By the evening time, it all abated and I was fine. Same thing happened with my parents. Alhamdulillah. Likewise, there was a second. There was a second one that uh, that got me. That got me sick, where I just had headaches and stuff. But life is filled with risks, and yep. if you're gonna go out and you want to avoid all risks as possible, by all means, go ahead. Stop driving. Um, stop using the oven. There's a chance you could get burned. And go ahead and just live in your cocoon if that's what you want to yep. do. Um, yep. But we've gotten our doctor's advice <laughs> and the doctor has given his answer. So, um, Jazakallah khairan, um, Dr. Ghilan, um, we really appreciate it. And, um, we, inshallah, hopefully this can be, um, the beginning of another series of, uh, podcasts, not necessarily ours, but a bunch of other people begin discussions on this, a very important topic, inshallah. Um, with that, we will conclude. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.